This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. This is Carl Jorn, field agronomist for Northwest Indiana, joined as always by my fellow co-hosts, Brian Trader and Ben Jacob. How are you guys? Very good. Doing well. Awesome. Well, uh, we are recording for the uh, July 14th episode of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast and thought we'd kick things off by just a quick around the horn uh, with respect to crop conditions, see how things are looking and uh, anything else uh, kind of on our on our mind. We've got a cornucopia of topics this morning, just kind of a, a catch all, if you will. Uh, and uh, we'll start things off down south with Ben. Um, they've had a lot of rain here over the last six weeks, usually coming in fits and spurts. So Ben, how's that impacted the crop so far? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the rain started to behave itself a little bit more. And um, at this point, at this point, that's what we need. We need more, but it's what we needed earlier too. But given the amount of rain that we had earlier, we have some restricted root growth in some places. Um, and you're starting to see some nutrient deficiencies show up, or we have been for several weeks in corn and soybeans, both. Um, so having, having these rains, these more gentle rains, more consistent rains later on in the year really helps work through, um, having, having limited root growth, you know, having water in the profile where the roots are, um, will really help, really help us as, as we're rolling through July. Now you can really see the impact of those earlier rains as, as corn is tasseling, it stands out quite a bit because driving down the road, you can see, you can see every single low area is behind and tasseling. Um, I don't think I've seen a single field this year that just drive by it one day and everything, everything is tasseled out at the same time. Um, so it just speaks to some of the extreme weather that we had, that we had early on, but overall, the majority, the majority of the corn um, planted through through the end of May, through the last week of May, has has tasseled or is tasseling. Um, and soybeans, we have we have such a wide window on planting dates with replant and everything. Um, we have we have some soybeans that have only been on the ground two weeks in some of those tougher areas. Obviously, obviously they're not moving into reproductive growth, but about everything else, even even up through early June, at least has flowers on it. Um, rows, the, the April through mid-May beans have canopied. Um, so anything later than that, which there were a bunch of, it's still having, still haven't canopied yet. Uh, you know, that's a, it's, it's good that we have an option to get back in there and control the, this late flush of weeds that is coming with all, all the rain that we've had, because there, there are some that are, that are not holding. So well, what, what you shared is kind of similar to what we experienced just a few weeks later than you did with some of those torrential downpours uh, here a couple of weeks ago in northwest, north central Indiana. You know, there's some spots that caught half a foot of rain over just uh, 48 hours time. And so we're dealing with with the aftermath there, uh, like you were saying, low laying areas being further behind in development, um, got some some spots that, you know, habitually drown out but now we're as you're getting to the margins of those areas you got some highlighter green looking soybeans and and things of that nature brian i wonder if you guys have 
have anything similar to what Ben and I are experiencing thus far? I think it's very similar, Carl. I think if you look at the northeastern part of the state, you can kind of chunk it up into thirds uh, in terms of what they've gotten rainfall-wise over the growing season with the northern third and the southern third of that being the most extreme in rainfall. Uh, I think that, you know, you would see or would have dealt with much of the same thing. My colleague Lance Shepard has dealt with to the north in terms of the rain. Ben's rainfall totals probably echoed a little bit in that southern third. Right through the central part, though, uh, corn is incredibly good. Uh, maybe perhaps even better than expected with the planning window we had and some of the early challenges. Uh, we've have certain fields that maybe have been abused that we see the uh, uneven pollination that Ben spoke about, but for the most mm -hmm. part, things are pollinating quite well, or I shouldn't say pollinating, tasseling quite well um, in this middle third, a uh, little more extreme in, in each of the others. The soybeans are probably the big thing for us at the moment. We've got fields that while maybe not necessarily going backwards, they're just not growing as well as some, as some of the neighboring fields. The mm -hmm. highlighter yellow beans that you spoke about are certainly pretty commonplace. We've got the low-lying areas that stands were reduced because of water early. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of late phytophthora now show up. Uh, and we've got confirmed diagnosis of that coming through the Purdue lab of that from some fields in the northern part of, of the territory. So we've got some challenges on the soybean side, I think. Uh, still good quality stands in a lot of places, but we do have some fields that are going backwards. Our corn crop, though, I feel like overall, at least in the middle third of uh, northeastern Indiana is doing really quite well. Awesome. Well, it, it seems to me as if those, uh, those bean fields where we got, you know, that um, lighter color to them as opposed to that dark green getting almost close to darn near black, you know, some beautiful, beautiful beans. Um, those that are much lighter in color, oftentimes uh, we're seeing those in overly saturated conditions where the roots, they just cannot access oxygen. And because of that, uh, you're just not seeing the nodulation being able to produce the nitrogen that the plant sees. And so usually uh, dark green plants are associated with adequate nitrogen um, usage. And when you're just not able to keep that biological process moving, that's why we're seeing that, uh, you know, those lighter green fields. Um, Brian, you'd mentioned a little bit about Phytophthora. Uh, moving on to the disease front, uh, I've got a little bit of Phytophthora that I've witnessed up in the northern latitudes in my geography as well. Uh, ben, anything that you're seeing down south here since our last recording? Yeah, we are seeing we are seeing a little bit, and it's sporadic plants here and there in a few fields. It's nothing nothing widespread, and I mean. The, the one thing about this year's planting window, even though it was very cool, we were blessed with, blessed with wonderful field conditions down here. So we didn't have that combination of cold and wet, you know, saturated conditions until we got later. Um, so I think that that really helped us out on the Phytophthora front. Um, on the eastern edge of the area that I cover, it's more so you're getting a little bit southeast of Indy, Shelby Johnson County. Um, it's a little bit, it, it's a little bit heavier there, I would say, but for the most part, very, very light, um, you know, probably speaks, speaks volumes about the strength of lumen seed treatment and, and where we're at in, in genetics. 
I'd agree with that too, Ben. I, I think the other thing too, we talk about with phytophthorin, a lot of times when we think about the seed treatments, we talk about phytophthora early, but you think about now, but this is late really. I mean, to be thinking about diseases like phytophthora, but I do think it's important too, to note that, you know, phytophthora is just not one big bucket. There are different races of phytophthora mm -hmm. that are there. And some of those races uh, react or handle certain conditions better or is more conducive for one race than another. So you've got to remember that you've got this big complex of different phytophthora races and, and that can be impacted because I've had some conversations with some folks that are like, man, this really didn't feel like phytophthora weather, what's going on? And to your point, those early phytophthora races, our seed treatment does an outstanding job on, and maybe some of these races we're seeing later, not only is our seed treatment starting to run its course, but they have a different environmental profile, if you will, that they like and uh, thrive in. And so I think that's important. We've not, we don't talk about that quite as much as maybe we should. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of, a lot of intricacies with Phytophthora um, management. You know, like you said, we've got that best in class new mode of action with Lumicina. Um, but then you've got the field tolerance, the genetics itself. And then you've also got actual genes of, um, of resistance to those specific races, a 1C, 1K, what have you. So um, yeah, there's certain locales where it seems as if you've got one, you've got the 1C gene, maybe it's going to move the bar more for you than the 1K or, you know, if you got those in concert stacked together. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a myriad of ways that we can manage for Phytophthora and and yeah, like you said, Brian, it's uh, it's exceptionally late. Usually you see Phytophthora rearing its head, you know, this time a month ago, um, as yeah. opposed to middle of July. Uh, the other thing I might add here too, Carl, is it we think of Phytophthora or really any of these things that we're talking about, the lack of oxygen because of saturation or those kind of things. We oftentimes think about those in depressional areas, mm -hmm. but I think it's important to note that if you're not seeing uh, or if you are seeing these diseases or these stresses in non-depressional areas, we may need to analyze some other things. Any stress can allow these things to happen, you know, and I think honestly, in my territory, I'm still seeing some of the things that we did uh, when we tried to get our crop out in 19 late uh, compaction and some of those things. And I know that seems like a long time ago, uh, to a lot of our listeners, but that was such an extreme. And we did so many things to try to get that crop in late that I do think that we compacted some areas pretty severely. Uh, and then last year in certain locations, you didn't have just the greatest fall for harvest and there's potential there. And so if you're seeing Phytophthora, if you're seeing these, uh, the lack of nodulations in areas that are non-depressional, we really need to look at some things and we may need to do something to correct uh, compaction or some other stresses in the field. The other thing I've seen along those lines, Brian, is that um, residue residue did not break down very well over this past winter and spring. Um, so there there are a lot of cases, and it, it's it's one of those situations where you know stress isn't added is is additive. It's not just we had this one stress and okay we recovered from that and moved on. It, it doesn't. You don't ever get recovered. That plant doesn't get recovered. So had all this cool stress early. We had frost. We had too much water or not enough water, um, and then we have we have all the residue in the ground that that didn't break down until late. 
Um, so in a lot of cases, I, I found a, a fairly clear pattern matching up with corn yield in the previous year, particularly in fields that have been, you know, this is our first year back to beans after continuous beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's lingered later than what you'd expect to see a nitrogen tie up from carbon. But looking at the spring that we had, it's not, it's not surprising um, that you would have a little bit of a nitrogen sink there in the soil with all the residue, especially when you, when you couple that with all the stress that, that the beans have went through already this year. So, I mean, it's really, um, there's really a, a myriad of issues in beans. It's, I suppose it's interesting for an agronomist. I know no growers want to, want an agronomist to start the sentence with that's it. That's interesting, you know, but having, having all these additive stresses is, is created kind of a, kind of a unique experience in my career with, with where beans are in places. Sure. Well, and you know, you think about where we're at on the calendar, I know you said we've got a wide range of uh, planting dates on soybeans, but the majority of beans throughout my geography are flowering at this point. So, um, you know, it's, really the name of the game when I'm talking to high yield um, seeking growers that are really pursuing a hundred bushels on a semi-consistent basis or trying to do things differently. A lot of the stuff we talk about is how can we reduce the abortion of blooms? And so when we're putting stress on those flowers that are they're entering into the reproductive stages, just know that that's not going to do wonders for us when we're trying to retain those blooms and be able to set a a big cluster of pods. So just something to be mindful of. We are somewhat setting the table for yield at this point in the season. Yeah. And I, Carl, I I would add onto that, you know, as we're approaching these later stages and Ben, you mentioned some of these weed escapes and we certainly have a lot of flexibility with the enlist system, but remember, depending on what you're putting in with the enlist, you're going to have a restriction on that. And that restriction goes right to what you're talking about, Carl. It's to make sure that we're not blowing those blooms off and we're limiting yield. And so uh, just remind everybody, make sure you're checking uh, whatever you're adding to the enlist, check that label and make sure that you know when the cutoff is on that so that we're not aborting blooms and potentially limiting yield on our soybeans. Well, and for folks that may be confused on what through R2 means, we don't reach the R3 growth stage until you have a, you know, a pod about a quarter inch long, more or less the width of your pinky fingernail and the upper foremost nodes of the canopy. So just because you're seeing them mid canopy doesn't mean that you need to stop spraying your enlist. You've got, you know, more time to uh, be able to continue to apply that, that herbicide. I know I can't recall if we mentioned this on the last episode or not, but that's been a common misconception in my in my neck of the woods. So, um, and R3, great, great reason to cover that. Uh, as we discussed previously, you know, that, that seems to be an optimal time to get that fungicide application on. Ben, you have any thoughts on that matter? No, I think it's a good call out, Carl, that um, soybean growth staging is, uh, it, can, it can be difficult because you're looking at, you're looking at vegetative and reproductive growth at the same time, whereas corn, there's a transition. And so we move, we move from vegetative growth into reproductive growth. And so it can be a little bit more difficult in beans. Um, but the key thing, the key thing on enlist is you can continue to spray until you have the pod, like Carl said, on, on one of those upper four nodes, a 316 inch pod. So the, the misconception that I run into a lot is that, that you have to stop spraying at R2. And that's, that's simply not the case. Um, I, I don't know where a lot of that is coming from, but you can spray, you can spray all the way up to beginning pod. So 
only the very earliest fields planted down here are there. Um, as it goes south of me, there are more, but the, but the May plant, pretty much everything that was planted in May around here, depending on maturity, is still an R2 for the most part. Um, it will likely still have, you know, another week to 10 days or, or more for later planted where you can, where you can spray and still be in that R2 window. You know, we've been talking about these low laying areas with uh, soybeans and the, you know, lack of nodulation or lack of activity from our nodules that have been established on the low laying areas in corn in my area where we had some of that extreme precipitation. We've got, you know, corn plant corn plants that are wrapped up um, almost as if they're in a drought stricken drought stricken state. Um, and so, you know, obviously, as we shrink up the that leaf area that uh, would be available to harvest that, uh, you know, that sunlight, we're, we're going to be decreasing photosynthesis. And the reason why that plant's, you know, wrapping itself up so tight is it's just the roots aren't able to be active because the, you know, that that area and the root zone is just depleted of oxygen. So it is purely in survival mode. So uh, again, we would like to avoid that as we're going into uh, the reproductive stages or when we're trying to establish, you know, how many kernels long the ear is going to be around V15 or so. So um, again, something to be cognizant of. Uh, most folks understand the yield monitor is going to dip in the low lay, low laying areas on a wetter year, but but kind of the justification as to why that's going on, um, something to be cognizant of. Uh, fellas, what else? Uh, what else is on our mind? I know here in the coming days and weeks we're going to be uh, trapping for some corn rootworm beetles. Um, in my area, where we've uh, started trapping for European corn borer for the non-GMO waxy acre, and um, also on you know some of my sandier soils, we're trapping for Western bean cutworm, and we're just starting to see that Western bean cutworm moth flight uptick here um, as uh, as numbers roll in this morning. So, uh, any of you all want to kind of discuss corn rootworm, what we're doing, why we're doing it? Um, and, uh, enlighten the the good folks on that on that subject. I can take a crack at from now. I don't have I don't have any traps out this year. Um, but if you look at corn rootworm populations over the last several years in in western Indiana and northern Indiana, um, there's there's been a steady increase, and a lot of that a lot of that is due to you know the environment that we've had. It depends that the the growth of a rootworm population depends an awful lot on the weather in June. And so we've had we've had um, good weather for for rootworm survival for several years. This year down here, other than where we had that extreme flooding, was was about ideal. Um, so that's actually on the agenda for this week for me is is root digs to to score to score nodal damage. Now we are not in a huge triples market. We sell a little bit here for for continuous corn. Um, but still it's, it's dominated by doubles. And one of the, one of the things that I guess is concerning about the, about the rootworm population growing is that we're starting to see rootworm feeding in, in rotated ground. Um, so as it turns out, there are some, there are some Western corn rootworm that beetles that will lay their eggs and they'll survive in soybeans, feed, lay their eggs, they'll stay, they'll, they'll overwinter there and, and feed on corn the next year. So 
we saw a little bit of that last year, uh, but as populations are kind of building, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what you know the next several days bring as far as as far as root feeding goes. Brian, I think you guys have some traps up your way, right? Yeah, we're going to be trapping. We're we're still probably a week out on some of the stuff uh, yet to go. Uh, to your point, we're going to trap in corn fields in some areas and then trap into the soybean fields as well. Uh, it's a pretty standard protocol across the corn belt for what we do. Uh, we get non-pheromone yellow sticky traps from a couple different suppliers. We place them in the field uh, about 100 feet or a little more apart uh, and in the field a good distance. We monitor them weekly. Uh, within Pioneer, we've got a, a way that we do that so that we can uh, bring all that data together from across the trapping locations to be able to look at it in a very holistic approach. Uh, and just, it's pretty straightforward. It's, it's not really, uh, all that, uh, doesn't take that much time. Uh, the timing on checking each week is, uh, important. We want that seven day, uh, cycle so that we can get that. And we look at averages per trap. Uh, we take total count per trap and then average those. And we have some pretty well-established protocols that when we get to certain numbers, we know uh, what that means for uh, product selection or uh, management uh, as we go into the following year. Uh, I think the other thing too, Ben, to mention is that part of this monitoring effort is for us, because we are not a huge triple market in your part of the world, Eastern Indiana the same way, unless we've got continuous corn. But if there is a significant shift in the environment and we have a, a, a need to move that way, we've got to know as an organization uh, so that we can do the things that we need to do to produce that supply for our customers. And so this is really uh, not only about being able to manage it in the field, but also being sure that when, if the time comes, that we have the appropriate supply that customers are demanding. Well, and to Ben's previous point, you know, on a lot of this being based on June weather, uh, here the last couple of years, we've had um, pretty good, pretty good conditions for larval um, emergence. And so, uh, you know, if you look at uh, what's going on with our colleagues out further to the west in Iowa, Nebraska, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, they're seeing a large uptick in the rootworm population. So with us being on the eastern bounds of where that pest seems to seems to make its home here over the last five years, we just want to make sure that, as Brian was was saying, uh, that we're prepared for when that day comes, that we've got the product ready to roll. Um, from a breeding standpoint, they're, they're baked. It's just a matter of what, uh, you know, how big of a batch we need to make, um, you know, in that seed production year. So awesome. Well, the only other, uh, you know, news item that I can think of was here over the last week, uh, Darcy Talenko's crew did come across some tar spot up in LaPorte and Porter County. Um, if you guys do remember from a previous podcast episode, I do believe there was a certain agronomist we had on that said, boy, with how the weather's kind of shaping up right now, it looks like there's a decent chance that tar spot might show up a little earlier than, uh, than what we have seen. And that guy was right. Whoever it was, um, he's, he's one sharp tack, but, uh, but yeah, Darcy's crew said uh, what they had found was just in some, uh, I think it was maybe V8 corn or something like that in um, very small incidence level. So not, um, not something to get too, uh, you know, too worked up about, but, but 
to know that, yes, it is in our state. Um, you know, they've confirmed it out in Iowa, Michigan, um, Wisconsin, and uh, I think there may be a county or two lit up in Illinois. So something for us to keep our eye out for uh, here in the coming weeks. So if there isn't anything else, fellas, uh, maybe we wrap things up here with uh, how folks can follow along on a more regular basis as opposed to just the weekly podcast. Maybe we start with Ben. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Economy. And Brian, uh, I am on Twitter as BK Schrader and on Instagram at B underscore K underscore Schrader. And you all can follow along with Carl in Northwest Indiana on Twitter at C Jorn. So. Um, thanks for tuning again for another edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. Uh, we look forward to hearing from you all as you're getting out in your fields, making some scouting trips to identify uh, your disease levels and justifying that fungicide trip uh, from our previous episode that we discussed that. But uh, as uh, more things go on uh, in the wide world of agronomy, we'll be sure to bring you that local flavor for what's going on in, uh, in the state of Indiana. So until next time, happy scouting and be safe. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.